Let's pray together. Father, when we set our hearts upon the depth of our need, the desperate condition every one of us either has lived in or even is living in, we turn to you and say, save us. And how thankful we are that your rescue is perfect and complete. There's not one part of it that you entrust to us, to our resources or ingenuity, but from beginning to end, salvation is yours. You personally are our salvation. How thankful we are that salvation is not found even in a a system of theology or a philosophy of life, but salvation is found in a person. It's not a system of self-reform. It's not a system of doing enough penance. It's a system of faith. Faith that carries us into a relationship with this God and Savior, Jesus the Christ. With hearts that have been delivered from sin, we can now sing glory be to the Father. With souls that have been redeemed from the penalty of our sin and the guilt and shame, even some of those things that we just sang of, it allows us now to sing in all confidence, glory be to the Son. To experience the new birth where you not only remove all of that guilty past and grant to us the gift of eternal life, but then you, in the person of your spirit, occupy our very souls, making us the dwelling place of God. That is reason for us to sing glory be to the Spirit. What a privilege it is to know you as you are. And what joy it gives us that you save for eternity all who come to you. You've been doing it for thousands of years, and our prayer is that you would do it again on this day, even in this gathering, that for those whose shame is overwhelming, they would find the relief that comes through the forgiveness of Jesus Christ, that those who felt that it's all up to them, that somehow they must earn eternal life, that they must merit your favor and salvation, relieve them of that unbearable weight that they might know Jesus is the Savior who does it all. And for those whose hearts are captured by other affections, other priorities, oh, let this be the day where they see that Jesus is the singular great treasure of life. And we open the word in hope and expectation that we will see the Lord Jesus as he is, in all of his glory, in all of his saving power. And we also pray that we would see ourselves as we are. So, Spirit of God, come now. Bless us. Though we do not deserve it, bless us for your namesake, that we may experience the riches of this one and only Savior, your only begotten Son, dear Father, Jesus. It's in his name that we pray all these things, amen. Well, open your Bibles with me this morning to Matthew 1. Matthew 1, we have been looking for, this is the third week now, in this little brief series uh, that I've titled, Do Not Be Afraid, and we're looking at four different texts commonly associated with the Christmas story where those words are spoken either to individuals or a group of people. And we began three weeks ago looking at Zechariah and how God sent his uh, angel messenger Gabriel to him and spoke to him truth, some of which we touched on this morning, 
Uh, Matt's reading just before the offering uh, was Zechariah's response to what, the, to, to what the angel revealed to him. Then last week we looked at, the, at Gabriel's visit to Mary, uh, where he also said to her, do not be afraid. And today we're going to come to a third passage where an angel, he is not identified as Gabriel, uh, just an angel comes and speaks to this man who is key to the Christmas story. And in all of these four occasions, next week, God willing, if God gives us life and uh, we're able to gather again next week, we'll look at uh, Luke 2 and the uh, messenger coming to the angels and then being joined by that heavenly host and right in the middle saying to the shepherds, do not be afraid. And God always connects that message to uh, some aspect of his character or his work. And so we're going to look for that again in this particular portion. So look at verse 18, Matthew 1, as Matthew, this uh, disciple of Christ and author of this first gospel, records important truth for us. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband, Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. And now Matthew will quote Isaiah chapter 7. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Who are your people? That's a phrase you sometimes hear when people refer to their past or maybe the particular region of this country or maybe even the nation of the world where they've come from. And they'll say, well, my people, and then they would describe them. If my wife were to claim her people, most of them are of Swedish descent with a little bit of French Canadian sprinkled in there. So she might say, well, my people you know, are from Sweden. My people come from a little Midwestern town in Illinois that's known for growing corn. My people are farmers. You might say, well, my people actually are some of the original Utahns. For as long as I can look in the rearview mirror, all I see is Utah, Utah, Utah. They're my people. Sometimes we talk about the way my people do things, right? We have family traditions, and some of you will observe them this particular week because with Christmas, my people have always celebrated in this particular way, and that will include either when you open gifts, how you open gifts, what kind of gifts you might give to one another, or what dollar amounts are you know, important uh, to be invested in those gifts. It might include the food that you eat this week from Christmas goodies that are fresh baked or particular meals and menus that you observe. It's all part, part of my people. One of my closest friends uh, would tell you his people come from the hills of Tennessee. And if you met him, you might not 
suspect that. And I don't mean that in any kind of denigrating way to those who are from Tennessee, because there are some even here in our midst. And, and he is one of my dearest friends. And they are, they are smart and resourceful and frugal and do-it-yourself kind of people. And probably nothing illustrates the spirit of my friend's people more uh, than that little uh, story I, I like to tell, and he tells it even better than I, that when his mother died and the family decided that she would be buried back in Tennessee, they, they uh, were working out all the arrangements, and his dad was part of this and, and realized that the cost to transport mother back to Tennessee was thousands of dollars. And being from Tennessee... You know, his dad said, we don't need to pay all of that and did a little investigation and realized that if he had the proper paperwork, he could take mother back to Tennessee. And that's what they did. He got the paperwork and loaded her up into the back of his red pickup truck and he drove her to Tennessee and she was laid to rest in fine fashion and they kept a few thousand dollars extra in their pocket because that's what his people do. I don't know who your people are, but I suspect that some of them uh, you love to claim, and others you just assume let them go. Those are the people who embarrass us. And the family reunions that sometimes happen, even around this time of year, in the middle of summer, we're always nervous that some of our people might show up. But out of this passage, a question emerges for me. Who are Christ's people? Because his name Jesus means he will save his people from their sins. Well, when you read through the scriptures, there are certainly those that John describes in his gospel, chapter 6, even through Christ's words. Jesus said, all that the Father has given to me shall come to me, and the one who comes to me I'll never cast out. He's not going to lose one of them. Those are his people. You read to the end of the Bible and come to those glorious passages like Revelation 4 and 5 where the ransomed people of God are described and, and they are uh, described as those who are gathered from every tribe and language and people and nation. These are the ones that, that through the blood of the Lamb have been redeemed and brought into this eternal kingdom and it's a kingdom of, of priests. Everybody is a priest to the Most High God. Those are his people. But here in Matthew 1, there is something that ought to actually first capture our attention and even amazement and then give every single one of us pause as we consider if we might actually be good candidates for his people. Now, we didn't read the first 17 verses, but I just want you to let your eyes scan over Matthew 1, verses 1 through 17. Verse 1 says, The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And then he's going to summarize more than 2,000 years of family history, but he's doing more than just giving us a little framework of Jewish history. He actually says, and this is Matthew writing this, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. And then in taking us back over 2,000 years to Abraham, who, who seems to be the head of this family, there are three sets of 14 that he refers to. Look uh, toward the end of this as he summarizes it in verse 17. All the generations from Abraham to David were 14 and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportations to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Now I'm going to tell you, if you compare this genealogy with some of the others recorded in the Old Testament, you will find some gaps. 
And some have actually offered that to say, well, see, there's one of the inconsistencies of the Bible. It contradicts itself. Well, it, let's put this in its proper perspective. Because if I actually wanted to tell you some key things about my own family history, and I actually told, decided to skip over James, my father, and Virgil, my grandpa Brooks, and go back to uh, another Brooks named Bart, would that be dishonest of me and inconsistent? Well, it depends on my purpose, right? And I might actually not even mention James or Virgil because I want to get you back to Bart and tell you some things about him. And so if I speak of Bart as my father, it's accurate in one sense, even though he's not the one who, biologically speaking, uh, gave me entrance into the world. Well, I think it's a telling and important thing for us to acknowledge that there are actually some names left off of this list of 42 characters, 42 generations. That tells us that Matthew is actually trying to not so much give us an exact history of the family tree, but he's actually trying to point us to some important things. It's also noteworthy that in this genealogy, there are four ladies mentioned, three by name and one by clear reference, and that's very unusual. Again, it's reminding us that there's something about the genealogy of Jesus Christ that must come into view. Some of you are on the verge of completing an annual read through the Bible, and I know several of you are reading it chronologically. That's a great way to read the Bible, and if some of you are thinking about, what should I do for the new year? Let me strongly encourage you to find a, a, a chronological schedule for reading through the Bible. Um, it, it will be such a great blessing and give you a sense of the whole story. Now, if you've read through the Bible, chronologically, you know that it takes you uh, 10 months plus a few extra days to get through the Old Testament, and it actually becomes rather exhausting. And not just because, you know, you have list after list of laws and statutes and regulations, and then those long stretches of history where it just seems kind of being, you know, this, this recounting of, of pointless details, and then there are a number of genealogies that appear even in the Old Testament. But what really wears your soul down is how sinful and broken every generation and every individual truly is. And when you read through this genealogy in Matthew, these are some characters. I mean, these are, it is full of men who were broken and sinful, some of them just flat-out scoundrels and schemers. Abraham, who, it, when he was first called out of Haran, was not a giant of faith. He was an idolater. He just received mercy because God in his kindness said, Abraham, come with me. I'm going to pull you out of a family, out of a heritage, out of a land that is known for its idolatry, and I'm going to take you to the promised land. And even though Abraham's faith awakens at that point, he's the guy that betrayed his wife, not just once, but twice. You remember those stories about how he goes into Egypt, and he's like, you know, Sarah, you are a good-looking woman, and they will kill me to, to take you into Pharaoh's palace. So would you just tell, her you're my sister, tell him you're my sister? Ladies, how would that make you feel? You'd be like, husband, man up. Where's my knight in shining armor? Well, Sarah, he ain't here. As if one time wasn't enough, he, he rewinds that tape and plays it again when they encounter Abimelech. Uh, could we do the sister thing again? These are not stalwarts of the faith. God's going to grow them over time to that. And, and then we, we know the stories of Isaac and Jacob. Jacob, whose name means schemer who swindled his own brother out of the inheritance. 
but these are Christ's people. The four women mentioned in this first chapter of Matthew have less than pristine reputations. Tamar is the one who seduced her own father-in-law in order to raise up an heir. Rahab, known as the Canaanite prostitute, who in Israel came in to take the land that God had promised to them, actually puts her faith in the living God, and God shows mercy to her and rescues her from that life of, of immorality, of prostitution. She actually marries into the line of David. Then you come to Ruth, who she is a, a woman of integrity. She's a Moabite woman. You talk about an outlier. She would not be one that anyone would ever expect to be brought in to the line of Messiah, widowed and destitute at that one point, but this noble character who marries a guy named Boaz, who happens to be the son of Rahab. Don't forget those connections. And then together, they have a son named Obed, who gives birth to a son in his own uh, time named Jesse, who happens to give birth to a son way down the line whose name is David. And in Matthew's genealogy, he doesn't even, does not even name Bathsheba, simply refers to her as the wife of Uriah the Hittite. And we all know the sad and tragic story of how after committing adultery with David, David ordered Uriah put at the, the front of the line and, and murdered. But out of all of David's wives, which is another blemish on Messiah's line, a king who multiplied wives, it's through this one wife that Solomon is born. These are Christ's people. And then you continue reading through the list and there are seven more kings who are named uh, Rehoboam, Abijah, Jehoram, Ahaz, Manasseh, uh, Amos or Amon as he's also known, Jeconiah and Zedekiah. Uh, these were wicked kings. These are kings whose, whose lives and rule were characterized by rebellion against God's law. They all worshiped false gods, some of them even sacrificing their own children by fire to the false gods. These are, are men who multiplied wives, who made treaties with God's enemies and did evil in the sight of the Lord of unspeakable kinds. These are Christ's people. And following the exile, there's very little to be excited about. Oh, there's some moments of righteousness and recovery, but on the whole, the, those final 400 years of this genealogy that lead us right up to the time of, of Jacob and then his son Joseph, who we know is betrothed to Mary, are, are, are years that are marked by struggle and decline, loss of influence, and even loss of hope. But despite the sin and scandal of this family tree, there were promises made and covenants that God himself struck that had greater significance than even this obscure, righteous carpenter named Joseph could see at this moment. You see, if you go back, even through this really twisted, distorted family tree, you would see God making promises to Abraham. The great covenant is first made in Genesis 12 where God says to this man who is far from perfect, I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. What mercy. Then you read of the covenant promise that God made with David. It's recorded in 2 Samuel 7, 16. Your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Solomon is aware of that, and even as he dedicates the temple and, and prays, uh, it, it, and Solomon is not really a model of godly 
Christian manhood, if I can put it that way, but he is aware of the promises that God has made. And there's a beautiful prayer in 2 Chronicles 6, verse 16, where he says, O Lord, God of Israel, keep for your servant David, my father, what you have promised him. And despite the wickedness of those seven kings I mentioned earlier, who were, humanly speaking, the reason that God brought such severe discipline upon Israel, sending them into exile, many of them losing their lives, all of them losing that that share in the promised land. But even in the midst of all of that, where God is pouring out his wrath and disciplining his, his own people, it is recorded in 2 Chronicles 21, verse 7, Yet the Lord was not willing to destroy the house of David because of the covenant that he had made with David. And since he had promised to give a lamp to him and to his sons forever, God makes promises that he will not break. But I got to tell you, at this particular point, when Matthew begins to bring us into uh, the gospel story, we kind of look around and say, an eternal lamp? Joseph doesn't seem to be a bright beacon of gospel hope or light. Oh, he's a righteous man. He's an honorable man. He's a man of integrity in so many ways, but he's not a man of influence or significance as we're gonna see in just a moment. At best, you might look at Joseph and say, uh, a smoldering wick, but not a burning lamp. The truth, though, is that God made promises that actually have direct impact on Joseph. And one of the things that I pray you will see in this little brief series is that the promises that God has made are not just for key characters in this unfolding story of redemption, even up to our time, but they're for us personally. And they do include us. And they do have direct bearing upon the way we live our lives right now and what will happen in the days that are to come. Now, a couple of things from the context of this story. Look at verse 16 uh, of Matthew 1 again. Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. Right at the tail end, it becomes apparent to us that Joseph is the rightful heir to David's throne. But at that moment, he is living under oppressive conditions. You say, what do you mean? Well, if we jump over to Luke in that very famous Christmas story that begins with those famous words, in those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus. In those days. It wasn't any son of David or heir of David who had influence or power of any kind. Rather, all of the political power, so to speak, rested in Rome. And Caesar Augustus is is quite the character Do you know that Augustus is actually an ancient word suggesting something of a mysterious nature, even supernatural association with this individual? One historian writes of it as, and refers to it as the numinous, and just think supernatural. Something more than human. And after 27 BC, his official name was Emperor Caesar. And before they got to Augustus, they inserted two little Latin words. And I'm not sure that I'll pronounce this correctly, but I'll get close. Divi filius. And those two words simply mean son of God. Emperor Caesar, son of God, Augustus. You think that guy had an ego issue? Oh man, did he? Ever. And Rome, as a whole, fed it. They had this thing they called emperor worship. It really was a religion. That just reminds me that the human nature 
longs to worship something or someone bigger than itself. It's why we're so prone to become everything from sports fans to you know, political party fanatics. Augustus was a powerful emperor. He is the one who established the famous Pax Romana. If some of you remember anything from a history of civ class you had once upon a time or world history. That's a, again, Latin term that simply means the peace of Rome. And it actually was something that he put in force and it would continue uh, through the reign of Marcus Aurelius uh, almost 200 years later. He brought in an era of safety and security. One historian writes, he is the one who made possible travel and trade and renewed economic development and prosperity. He restored the religion of the republic and was considered to be the high priest of Rome. He's the one who initiated significant building activity, boasting, again, as this historian writes, that he found Rome a city of brick and left it a city of marble. So if you're waking up on an ordinary morning, even there in uh, Judea, and you know, you're brewing your morning beverage, whether it be coffee or tea or something else, and you begin to scan the headlines, you know, and those are old days, so they didn't have the internet. I'm sure they had newspapers. And you're looking at the headlines, and none of the headlines of that day say anything about the throne of David, you know, Joseph being the hope of the nation, What would the headlines read? Well, Augustus is doing or saying, or as we'll read in Luke, he's gonna issue a decree that all the world should be taxed. From the human perspective, it doesn't look like God is up to anything at all. So here's an heir of David's throne who actually is living through a difficult season. There's a second thought that I wanna draw your attention to as heir of David's throne, He has no position or significance. Nobody's knocking on his door. Uh, Joseph, would you run for office in Nazareth? Would you consider leading a revolt against Rome? No, we know from other scriptures that he's a carpenter. That just means he's a skilled laborer. Could have been a highly skilled laborer, but he's a common laborer. And and while we think of carpenters as working with wood, this is a term that actually is used in other places for stone workers or metal workers, and it includes wood. Maybe maybe you knew the, the trade in all three. But he's from Nazareth, a small town that archaeologists estimate was between a population of 500 and 2,000. Even by Judean terms, that's a little out of the way place. And pulling this little thought in from Luke 2, the fact that he is subject to the taxation of Rome, I mean, what does that say about his right to the throne of David? What heir, what royal heir of any throne pays taxes? So those are the little reminders to us that this is a man who has no position or significance. And so then the Luke 2 decree from Caesar comes out that all the world is required to be registered, that's, that's strictly with a view that they take this census and then they collect additional taxes. So he knew what it was to live under a heavy tax burden. Some of you are really worried about the, you know, you've heard President-elect Biden say that he's gonna restore some of the percentages, higher percentages, and I mean, nobody wants to pay more taxes, and you know, it's actually a discouraging thing. Don't do this, actually, especially not right now, but if you add up your federal and your state and your sales tax and your social security tax and your property tax and your gasoline tax, you start feeling like, no wonder I have no money to spend. And on top of that, part of what exasperates us is the irresponsibility of those who spend our taxes. 
Not all of them, but most, right? Because we all sit there and go, have they lost their minds? Probably that's another conversation. But we're not the first generation to live under this kind of pressure. Not the first people to feel like we, we have no significance in world history, no position that we could leverage to, to bring about anything good or righteous. And that brings us to verses 18 and 19. Look at this with me, please, because he is not only the heir of David's throne who lives in a difficult time and seems to have no position or significance that he could leverage. He's also a righteous man, who, and, and that means he orders his life according to the word of God, but it's a confusing an overwhelmingly confusing moment for him. Look at verse 18 with me. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit, and her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. That just, that just barely describes the great confusion and tension in his soul. We looked at this from Mary's perspective last week, and so I'm not gonna spend a lot of time developing what it means that the Holy Spirit came over her as the word of God tells us, and this is a supernatural and miraculous conception and birth, but just imagine the questions that are rolling through Joseph's head and heart. No doubt she told him what Gabriel had said, but he's wrestling with what he sees. Mary, you know, I love you, fully intended to make you my wife, but we all know how babies enter the world. Did they have conversations where he begged her to be honest? Just tell me, Just, we'll figure out a way. And maybe as she insisted, no, Gabriel came and the Holy Spirit hovered over me. This is a miraculous conception. Maybe that actually added to the tension for a time. And, and apparently he did because he is, he is wrestling with what she is saying and what has actually happened. And he knows he's not the father and probably wondered who was, what should I do? And I, I don't have any idea, way to determine how much sleep this man would have lost. But I'll guarantee you, this was a season where at least for a time he was not sleeping well. And it was probably hard for him to concentrate on completing the next job. And then as word spread, Mary's expecting, Mary's expecting. He had additional conversations that were probably difficult, starting with his parents, and maybe he had siblings and other close friends, and Joseph, what are you gonna do? And you know, you love God, and you're righteous, and we've watched you live as a man of integrity and order your life according to God's word. You can't marry a woman who's immoral. And so when the Bible says he's a just man, it means he really does take seriously the word of God and says, I, I, I not only want to obey it, but I want to honor the God who gave these commands. But he is a compassionate man because look at verse 19. He's unwilling to put her to shame. And so he determined to put her away quietly. The contrast to this might be the woman who caught, was caught in adultery, and that story is recorded in John 8. The self-righteous Pharisees and religious leaders haul her out into the public, accuse her of the sin that she was guilty of, prepare to stone her on the spot because they want to make her a public example. And Joseph is of a different nature. Oh, he's just. He is a righteous man, but a, a compassionate heart that says, I, I don't want to put her to public shame. We can handle this privately. And that's the point he is at when, in a dream, an angel comes to him and, and is not only reminding Joseph that he is part of this long family history 
of distortions and perversions and unexpected twists and turns. But in this revelation that the angel gives him, it is a reminder that this God who brought him into this family tree is personally on his way to save them all. Look at verse 20. As he considered these things, Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David. That, that's who your people are, Joseph. You can't get away from it. But that's not all bad. Scoundrels, sinners, adulterers, murderers, swindlers as they were, they are also Christ's people. And now the angel says specifically, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. And isn't it beautiful that God, through his messenger, is addressing Uh, addressing Joseph's greatest fears and worries at this moment. In essence, he's saying, do not fear that Mary has been immoral. Take her as your wife. Do not fear who the Father is. And, And the angel says specifically, that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Joseph, let me settle this for you. She's not in sin. The Holy Spirit has, uh, has miraculously worked So this baby is from on high. And then a third thing, do not fear what others may think. And when the angel says, you shall call his name Jesus, he doesn't just say, he shall be named Jesus, as if, well, maybe that'll be Mary's. No, he's actually calling Joseph to step up to what was considered to be a Jewish father's right and privilege. And that means that Joseph is gonna have to publicly own this son. But he gives him every reason to, doesn't he? Do not fear what others may think of you or of Mary or even of this baby. Joseph, assume your fatherly privilege and name the son, but he's not your son to name. God on high has chosen the name. And this leads us to what I think is the, the best part of this paragraph. What's Joseph's fear probably for himself? It's what many of us carry through life. What of my eternal destiny? Yeah, I'm worried about completing the carpentry job for tomorrow, but way down the road, what happens to me at the end of life? And the angel says, do not fear. Your future is secure in the Son because He will save His people from their sins. God speaks to Joseph's greatest fears, but also speaks to the greatest need. Now, Matthew steps back into this story to give us a little commentary so we don't miss the big point, and that's what verse 22 is all about. So push the pause button on the angel conversation with Joseph and listen again as Matthew guides us. I told you that he's setting up that genealogy to make some significant points for us, right? And one of the things he's showing us is that the family tree that's behind Messiah, I mean, it's, it's sketchy. But look at this. All this took place, Matthew says, to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. And now he quotes Isaiah 7.14. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. These are prophecies given 700 plus years earlier. These are old. These are ancient. I, I am sure that, that uh, Joseph, as, as apparently a, a man from a godly uh, line of, of followers of God, had heard this Old Testament passage read often on Sabbath day. But how could he have ever expected that the virgin Isaiah spoke of is the Mary he's betrothed to? But that's exactly what 
is opening up to him. And you know, when you begin to recognize that God is actually not just making promises, but he is in the perfect timing fulfilling these promises for ordinary people like us, you begin to get perspective on all kinds of things. Now let me cast it in in Joseph's setting. I just gave you some things before about as an heir of David's throne, nobody's coming to him saying, hey, when can you ascend David's throne? When can you reclaim the kingdom here? No, the big headlines are about Caesar Augustus. But you know, when you begin to understand God's word and his eternal purposes and you see his faithfulness and his power to bring those purposes to to pass, suddenly Caesar's arrogant declaration that he is a God, a son of God, just doesn't seem to be a significant concern. Or even when the decree goes out that everybody has to be registered and we all know that this new census is going to mean more taxes for us. It's just unavoidable. But when you understand your place in the story of redemption and the greatness of your God and the greatness of the Son sent into the world to save you from your sins, suddenly even a heavy tax burden finds its proper place and perspective in your soul and you're like, no big deal. Eternity is secure for me. I could be bankrupt for a few years here. That would be uncomfortable. I hope it doesn't happen. But what, is, what are the days of this life in comparison to eternity? And suddenly even the Roman occupation, which would have just grated against the soul of every loyal Jewish man or woman, it's just not as significant. Or even the, the work deadline that's looming. How am I going to get those pieces put together and delivered before the next Sabbath. You know, this just puts Joseph's life in perspective. Even the challenge of explaining Mary's pregnancy falls into its proper place because he has the word of the Lord and he's watching God show up and fulfill old, old promises. And you know, if you go back and think through that genealogy, over 2,000 years, when you watch a family tree grow, in such a twisted and even at moments perverted and distorted and and discouraging way, it would cause you to doubt, wouldn't it? But from God's perspective, it was never in doubt because God determined before the foundation of the world that he personally would come to dwell with sinners. He would come to save his people. And so this particular prophecy given 700 years before Joseph even arrived on planet Earth, you will call his name Emmanuel, is is powerful consolation. And then Matthew adds that little parenthetical explanation uh, in case some of us aren't familiar with the Old Testament uh, prophecy and the Hebrew language in particular because the Hebrew name Emmanuel just means God with us. God with us? The best Caesar could do was to say, the peace of Rome be with you. God says, I'll do so much better than that. I'll come be with you. I am your peace. But he doesn't stop there. Verse 24 no, here, so we come back to the story. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Jesus, the one who saves us from our sins, has come. The only one who can save a corrupted genealogy that preceded him, and the only one who can save the, the corrupted branches that have proceeded since then is Jesus. And you know, it's not only a good and encouraging word for Joseph who might look back over those 2,000 years going all the way back to Abraham and go, we are a broken bunch. 
it's good for those of us who look back over the last 2,000 years and have to be honest about the ones we're descended from and what we are, even at this present moment in this generation, and own the fact that we too are sinners and scoundrels, a generation of rebels and idolaters and adulterers and murderers and liars and thieves in our own right. But how marvelous to think that in the same way that Jesus was not ashamed to be associated with any of those 42 generations who preceded him, he's not ashamed to be associated with any of us who've come since then. As a matter of fact, part of the great motivation for his entrance into the world was to rescue more sinners. So there's hope for you and me. And you see Joseph's sweet and, and simple trust in God just unfolding. He wakes up from the dream and did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. Think about what it meant to take a wife. That's what I would describe as humble faith. Hard in in some ways, because he too is gonna bear the reproach of this all the days that lie ahead of him. I told you last week with reference to Mary that there came a point where the Pharisees and scribes accused Jesus in just just a horrific moment, saying to him, we were not born of immorality. So Joseph's gonna bear that burden, but what will carry him through that is the reality of the God who has entered his life and entered the world to save us from our sins. It's a humble faith. Verse 25, he knew her not until she had given birth to a son. That's what I would call uh, an act of righteous faith. It's like, you know what, this is, this is bigger than me and my needs as a husband. This wife is precious to me and this son in her womb is conceived by the Holy Spirit and I don't want anybody to think this child came from me. This is God's one-of-a-kind son. So it's a righteous faith as he protects the purity of his bride and the virgin birth of this child, and then he called his name Jesus. So he does assume that Jewish father's right and privilege, but he doesn't assign a name of his own choosing. He takes the name from God on high and says, I'm totally submitted and committed here. His name is Jesus, because he's the one who will save us from our sins. So this is an act of saving faith. I would love to know, and when we get to heaven, maybe we'll think to ask Joseph and Mary questions like this. Hey, okay, tell us the whole story. I, I'm, Mary, what was it like? Joseph, what was it like? And when you came back in and said, an angel came to me in a dream, which isn't it interesting that like Gabriel f- showed up physically? Joseph only gets the dream sequence. Like, what, what's with that? Does God love ladies more than he loves the men? Nonetheless, to hear them tell the story, and who knows how that went down. Mary, an angel appeared to me and told me everything. You will be my wife, but this baby will be our savior, and I'm sure that, you know, there was just more praise. Something so simple, yet so powerful in this moment, and by faith, Joseph embraces the privilege and responsibility that was his. He only does what God Almighty had instructed him to do. And beloved, as we Look again at this great theme. Do not be afraid. Do you, are, are you beginning to see multiple reasons for us to live in confidence and courage in these very difficult times? So many similarities between what we are experiencing right now, politically, economically, just even the, the currents religiously in our world. So many parallels with that first century gospel story. I don't know when Jesus is gonna return, but the, the next big promise, and I actually thought about reading this whole portion. You can go there, Second Peter 3, and read that later, but, but our generation is being called to prepare for the next coming of Christ, to wait patiently, to wait courageously, to live purely, to commit ourselves fully to him because he came once, he's coming again. Are you ready? And it makes me so 
hopeful. But the, the big point here that I, I just want to leave with you is that the sin of 42 generations was no obstacle to God coming to make his dwelling with us and ultimately in us. And it's not for him now. Some of you feel like, you know, I, I've just sinned my way out of God's saving grace. No, you have not. The sin of 42 generations from Abraham to Joseph was not only no obstacle, but it was actually the compelling reason that he came. If I don't go save my people, no one will. That's, re- that's what you can read b- between those lines. Clearly, Abraham couldn't save him. David couldn't save him. Jeroboam wasn't about to save him. Nobody can save but Jesus. So as you set your heart upon the Christ child, let the reality of these stories, because it wasn't all glory and soft candlelight glow. You know, we're, when we gather uh, Thursday night for our Christmas Eve service, which we hope will come, we'll, we're going to sing a lot of Christmas carols and read some Christmas stories, and, and it will be a glorious time. But, oh, there's a raw edge to the Christmas story as Matthew records it, as Luke records it. And, and that's good for us to remember because we live in pretty raw times and some of us are pretty raw people. But these are exactly the times and we're exactly the kind of people that Jesus came to save. I'll close with this from Titus 2, verse 11. If you remember from our series in Titus just a few months ago, this was a portion. I think, Nick, you preached this, didn't you? Titus 2, 11 through 14. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us. Oh, Jesus, why would you do that? He gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession. Do you know how much Jesus loves to say because of his blood and sacrifice, you are my people. The cross is the proof. And he did all of that, as Paul goes on to say, that we might be zealous for good works. What a savior. The God who is with us and the God who saves us from our sins. Let's pray. Lord in heaven, it is is too good to be true, but we believe it is true. And pray that you would bring the power of Christ, of his life, his death, his resurrection to bear upon our souls on this day. Not just to give us perspective on the difficult circumstances of life and 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 the inexplicable hardships that even good people experience, but that we might have the eternal perspective. We are descended from the same corrupt and sinful genealogy that Matthew records. And yet the one great member of this genealogy who gives us hope is Jesus. How we thank you that we are not called to trust Abraham or David or even Joseph. We are called to put our faith in Jesus, the Christ. I ask, Spirit of God, that you would take this truth and secure us, sanctify us, cleanse us, strengthen us, make us whole. And let the glory of this grand truth that the Lord himself is our salvation be not just a song in this service, but be the testimony of our lives. Lord Jesus, You see every heart, you know every need, and we pray that more than just 
conversations between people that the Spirit himself would attend uh, the word and bring life and healing and blessing and strength and growth to all who are here today. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.